opened the door to the most powerful room in housing, built for mortgage executives, real estate leaders, and the rising stars that drive innovation and progress. The gathering will feature over 45 powerful speakers on stage in Scottsdale, Arizona from April 21st to 24th. Learn more and register now at housingwirethegathering.com. Welcome everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where our editors and reporters discuss the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is mortgage reporter Maria Volkova to discuss everything from Humda lenders to foreclosure changes to flood insurance. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Why have rates only at the eighths? Great question. Don't get stuck with rates at the eighths or brokering only 15 and 30 year loans. With PennyMac TPO's perfect rate and perfect term, you can customize rates to the thousandths and loan terms from 96 months and up. Sound perfect? We think so too. Go with the lender who lets you customize rates to better meet your clients' needs. Visit tpo.pennymac.com. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, and MLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. Maria, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Sarah. Happy to be here. Really happy to have you. You know, I wanted to start off by noting that um, you and Georgia have been writing up um, some great articles based off the Humda data that was released last week. We've had Polygon Research um, has helped us to drill down into the data to find out who the top lenders are, including FHA lenders, and and just slicing and dicing that data uh, for different parts of our audience. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, really interesting to take a look through and see kind of the origination volumes in 2021 and what was happening in the lending space that year? It was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, and we did have some change at the top. So I would tell people, go and uh, look at our coverage there. Um, we've got more to come. We're just going to continue to drill down to the data to really find out um, who did what over 2021, which, as you said, was an incredible uh, year for volume. Yep. So one of the stories I wanted to talk to you about was your story on the New York bill that would change the statute of limitations on foreclosures. And um, this is this is such an interesting thing. So first, can you tell us a little bit about what that what that bill would do if it gets passed? Yeah. So uh, this bill that's currently making its way through the New York Senate, uh, it's called the Foreclosure Abuse Prevention Act, um, and it's expected to pass sometime this week. Um, And basically, the bill stipulates that uh, once a lender has initiated a foreclosure action and accelerated the loan, uh, they only have six years to complete a foreclosure. Um, Currently, a lender operating in New York has six years to initiate a foreclosure action, but there's a nuance. If uh, the action is dismissed for any reason, if there's a false start, a lender can deaccelerate a loan and then reinitiate a foreclosure action, um, and this may no longer be the case. Yeah, and I think that's that's really the key point here, right? Is that it's like it's not just um, they because you think, wow, six six years is a really long time, but actually they can they can sort of. Um, come in and do it even longer if they're like, let's pause this and then restart it later. Right. So that's 
kind of uh, what the bill argues is that it creates this loop that can continue on for decades without a foreclosure action actually happening. Um, And uh, this uh, is able to carry on because of a decision in Freedom Mortgage Corporation versus Engel, which basically has allowed lenders to stop and restart the limitation period at will, uh, prolonging foreclosures for years. And this will put a stop to it. One of the, um, you know, one of the, the bill reads that as a direct result of Engel, trial and appellate courts Throughout the states have been bombarded with a flurry of motions made by mortgage lenders and servicers to reopen cases. So um, that's that's their their opinion, right? That they don't want that to happen. Um, but but really interesting. Um, what about the fact of um, that the the legislation actually looks back at mortgage foreclosures? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, so if uh, basically what happens is that. Uh, this, uh, if the rule goes into effect, then uh, this will be retroactively applied to all mortgage foreclosures in which a final judgment of foreclosure and sale has not been enforced. So if a court previously ruled on an issue where a lender deaccelerated uh, de the loan before initiating their new action, Uh, a borrower could basically file a motion to reconsider that. Um, And basically, uh, some attorneys uh, who are against this bill argue that uh, a lot of lenders are in effect, if this bill goes into effect, lenders are suddenly going to have some pool of their portfolios where there's lien loss risk. Uh, where it didn't previously exist. So Maria, one of your uh, sources in that story is Brian McGrath, who's a partner at law firm Hinshaw and Culberson. And he had a lot to say about what what this might look like. And also he kind of just walked us through, you know, what that process is. So what what does he feel like one of the unintended consequences could be? So McGrath argues that uh, one of the unintended consequences may be that lenders... Uh, who operate in New York, and there's a swath of lenders uh, who are pumping out loans there, Um, they may decide that it's too risky to lend in New York, uh, which will inevitably limit consumer choice. Uh, And basically, he says that uh, this could potentially create risk for them because they uh, won't be able to... uh, there won't be recoverability on a mortgage should it go into default. Yeah. And you know, I mean, New York is already a really difficult state to do a foreclosure in. I mean, it's a judicial state, which means that, you know, a lender who has to file a lawsuit against the uh, homeowner in court to enforce its lien. And, and that takes the judicial states take forever. They, they estimate already that it takes about 445 days for you know, from the from the date of the first missed payment to the sale of the home and foreclosure, so I, I would assume that you have you know it's not like lenders and servicers are just dying to initiate foreclosure. It it wraps them up. It takes so much time already. 
that it's just kind of amazing to think it might take even more time. Um, obviously, you know, a, a consumer might feel differently about that. But for our audience, uh, already New York is just makes it really hard if people have stopped paying on their mortgage. Yeah, and now it seems that if this rule goes into effect, uh, there will just be more risk for lenders. Uh, but on top of that, uh, McGrath argues that uh, in response, uh, lenders may move to tighten their underwriting requirements. Um, uh, he basically argues that uh, the more you, and the more that you move this needle on underwriting uh, to basically protect yourself from default um, for a lender, uh, the more people you close out of the lending market. Um, oh, wow. That's, that's a great point. And, and even more important right now, you know, we're seeing rates rise, um, home prices are really high. So you add another layer on underwriting and you can see that, you know, it, it could potentially be bad for, you know, not only the mortgage lenders and servicers, but, you know, borrowers too. So we'll, we'll definitely be looking to you to follow that up and see if that actually passes or what happens with that bill, because that could have some far reaching implications. Yeah. So, you know, another story I wanted to talk to you about was one you wrote recently about, um, the FHA backed 4.5 billion in mortgages without required flood insurance. So, um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, a HUD Inspector General report was published last week uh, that found uh, that HUD insured over 31,000 loans that did not have the proper flood insurance coverage. Um, And these loans total close to, as you mentioned, $4.5 billion, uh, and it could have a potential loss the FHA could incur a potential loss of about $1.5 billion from, from this. Well, and uh, apparently, so they've made a change to that. Based on that, now what is it that uh, lenders have to do? Yeah, so uh, HUD has actually implemented changes to their systems to require lenders to demonstrate that uh, these loans that the FHA is insuring actually comply with uh, federal flood insurance requirements. And basically, properties located in special flood hazard areas, borrowers must uh, have this uh, national flood insurance program coverage, or else uh, the FHA will not insure a loan. Well, and you know, Flood risk is already huge. So, you know, the report said that out of 8.3 million loans with FHA insurance in 2020, approximately 197,000 loans are in areas that require flood insurance. And that, you know, every year we seem to have more natural disasters. There's a lot of climate uh, associated risk happening in different areas, even places that traditionally you wouldn't have worried about. Um, flooding. So I think that this is an area that's just going to continue to get, you know, more and more complicated. Yeah, but uh, I guess, thankfully, now HUD will have a greater way to at least track uh, 
what homes have uh, this required flood insurance, what homes don't have this required flood insurance. Uh, and on top of that, currently, uh, a rule uh, is making its way through that will also allow borrowers to opt for private flood insurance, which uh, wasn't the case before. Um, so after that rule goes into effect, it was expected to go into effect uh, in March, but uh, it hasn't yet. Uh, but once it's implemented, it will undo a lot of regulations, um, which will allow borrowers to have private flood insurance and it will uh, save the FHA money and will save borrowers money as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the National Flood Insurance Program is very, <laughs> it, it has a long history of just, you know, it's trying to fix a problem that's really hard to fix. And and the private flood insurance is is great, except that it's prohibitively, prohibitively expensive uh, in many areas. And so it will be interesting to see, does that really have uh, an impact? You know, are homeowners really able to take care of that? I, I think what it does by offering that, it, it might um, offload some of the risk that um, these loans have, but off of the servicing portfolio, um, for HUD, but <laughs> I, I don't know that that it, it's going to help. And it, it's another layer, you know, we were just talking about the layer of, um, underwriting that, that New York, that lenders might now have to have for their New York loans. And then you look at this, and then this is a, this is a serious change in what they're going to have to do. Um, anytime that we just say, oh, okay, now you have to, you know, certify that they have flood insurance now that you have to do this. It seems like a small change, but I remember when, um, when they put into practice TRID, um, which was, uh, you know, a new rule that, that lenders had to do. It took like three years to actually get that one change or several changes, um, adapted into the process because it's just, it's already a pretty difficult process to, to underwrite, to make sure everything's on there. So going to be interesting to see how long, how long this lasts, but also good that, you know, the, um, OIG, right. The watchdog group is, is trying to keep it safe. We're all, uh, we're all taxpayers are on the hook at the end of the day. But when you think about what this might mean, um, for, for lenders, it is a little bit tricky. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, we'll have to wait and see kind of what happens with that. But, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, trade groups and even the FHA itself uh, has said that uh, allowing borrowers to choose private flood insurance uh, may actually come out cheaper than opting uh, for the NFIP flood insurance policy. So I guess we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens. Absolutely. Um, we've been, you know, we've been covering this issue as long as I've been at HousingWire, as long as HousingWire has been um, in existence, and it just continues to evolve. So we'll definitely be looking for that. Yep. Maria, thanks for uh, keeping us up to date on what you have covered. Love going over those stories. What's next? What are you what are you looking on reporting right now? So I am currently taking a look uh a few weeks previously, or maybe it's been a month now, I wrote a feature story about uh, continuing education requirements for non-bank loan officers. Uh, and basically, uh, 
the gist uh, was that these CE requirements um, are outdated. A lot of loan officers are very unhappy that they have to do continuing education to recertify. Um, but I'm taking a look at another nuance of the story, and that's that uh, loan officers who work at depositories actually don't have to abide by the same NMLS requirements as LOs who work for non-banks, which means that uh, they don't have to recertify every single year and take the eight-hour CE courses that non-bank LOs do. So I'm going to kind of, I'm currently taking a look at that. That will be really interesting. And of course, you know, you think, oh, you know, CE requirements. Okay. Except that in January, we had regulators slap mortgage LOs with fines for for faking the fact that they didn't take an eight-hour course. So it's not just like, oh, check the box. It's like if if regulators are going to be uh, following up on this and and finding people or or keeping them from operating for a certain amount of time unless they do this like it's a, it's a very uh, top of mind issue. Yeah, and uh, from the gist that I'm getting now, de- depositories make the argument that we have our own in class kind of continuing education requirements, and that's why we're able to kind of. That, that's why RLOs don't have to abide by the same NMLS requirements. Um, some trade groups, such as the CHLA, um, have made calls to the CFPB to kind of uh, pushing this issue that, you know, why are there different requirements for depositories and for non-banks? Um, but no progress has been made to kind of... Uh, I guess, standardize everything across the board. So, you know, on so many fronts, there are different standards for, um, you know, depositories versus other kinds of lenders. And, you know, part of that is that they have to, they have uh, a lot more money that they have to hold uh, in reserve in case anything happens. There, There are just a lot of layers of regulation that they have that that uh, people argue that non-banks don't have. Um, that's changed a little bit in the, uh, since Dodd-Frank, but yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll be looking forward to that reporting and the stories that come out of it. And Maria, thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much, Sarah. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021. And that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HD Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.